My name is Rod Pyle, and I'm the next guest on On Screen and Beyond. On Screen and Beyond, an inside look into the entertainment world featuring interviews with people from the movie, TV, and music industry, news on upcoming TV and DVD releases, and the rumor mill. And now, here's the host of On Screen and Beyond, Brian Zemrak. Thank you for joining us for another edition of On Screen and Beyond. This is episode 401. I'm your host, Brian Zemrak, and this is the weekly show that keeps you updated on what's coming your way as far as upcoming new movies, remakes, sequels, and TV and movie DVD releases, as well as our interview segment with a guest from the movie, TV, or music industry. This week on On Screen and Beyond, our guest has worked on the History Channel, Discovery Channel, Modern Marvels, lectured to NASA. He's written many books, including his latest, Curiosity, the Inside Look at the Mars Rover Mission. And he's going to talk about that space music that they heard on the backside of the moon back in 1969 on Apollo 10. Rod Pyle is coming up right here on On Screen and Beyond. Stick around for that. It is going to be a very interesting show to listen to. What do you say? I want to get into it, so let's get right into Remake Madness, and let's find out what's coming your way as far as remakes that'll be heading our way, and it's all right here on On Screen and Beyond. Please hang up and try again. Remake Madness. Well, the remake of Disney's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was dropped for a while, and now it's back on, and it's coming back with the director of Wolverine 3 at the helm. And it looks like it will be an origin story. Now, Brian Singer is also talking about making a Captain Nemo film for 20th Century Fox. So it looks like we could have competing 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea stories and Captain Nemo stories. So we'll find out what, how that works out and how it goes. And let's see, Pamela Anderson says she hasn't turned down being in the new Baywatch film, but she has turned down what they've offered her. So we'll see how that turns out. And that's it for Remake Madness. Coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, what's coming your way as far as upcoming new movies? This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Upcoming new movies, it looks like 2017 is going to bring us uh, John Hurt as he stars in That Good Night as a dying, once-famous screenwriter sets out to reconcile with his son and be sure that he won't be a burden to his wife. And John C. Riley, Reese Witherspoon, Seth MacFarlane, and Matthew McConaughey, along with others, will provide voices for Sing as a koala gets his friends to help him drum up business for his theater by hosting a singing competition. And Scarlett Johansson will star in Ghost in the Shell. Now, This is about a cyborg cop who attempts to bring down a nefarious computer hacker. And that's it for upcoming new movies. Next on On Screen and Beyond, taking you down to Sequel City to find out what's coming your way as far as sequels. (laughs) 
Sequel City, well, the release of Alien Covenant has been moved from October 2017 to August 4th of 2017. So they're moving that one up. And Pacific Rim 2 is back on track, but Guillermo del Toro will not be sitting in the director's chair this time. Stephen S. DeKnight will take over this time. He has been the showrunner for Netflix's Daredevil. And it looks like the writers of Zombieland say that a sequel still is in the works, but they say it must be done right for it to happen. And that's it for Sequel City. Next on On Screen and Beyond, what's coming your way as far as TV on DVD? TV on DVD, May 17th, Xena Warrior Princess, Season 6, The Complete Series, arrives on DVD. April 26th, Hot in Cleveland, Season 6, lands in stores as well as The Complete Series set. And May 10th, you can look for The Untouchables, The Complete Series, to hit stores. That's it for TV on DVD. Next on On Screen to Be On, what's coming your way as far as movies on DVD? Movies on DVD, April 19th, Norm of the North, will arrive on Blu-ray and DVD. Uh, it looks like Ride Along 2 smashes into stores on April 26th. And the horror story Krampus will slide our way on April 26th also. That's it for Movies on DVD. Next on On Screen and Beyond, it's TV and Entertainment time. <laughs> TV and entertainment time. Fox has renewed Bones for a 12th season. And look for Luke Perry. He's going to play Archie's dad in the CW's upcoming Riverdale about the cast of the Archie comic books. That's it for TV and entertainment time. Next on On Screen and Beyond, it's Celebrity Birthdays. <laughs> we baked you a birthday cake. If you get a tummy ache and you moan and groan and woe, Celebrity birthdays, March 7th, Brian Cranston turns 60, and it looks like singer Taylor Dane turns 54. March 8th, Mickey Dolenz of the Monkees turns 71. March 10th, it looks like Chuck Norris turns 76, and Carrie Underwood turns 33. March 11th, Terrence Howard turns 47. March 12th, James Taylor, Sweet Baby James, turns 68. And Liza Minnelli turns 70. March 13th, Charo turns 75. And William H. Macy turns 66. And that's it for Celebrity Birthdays. As far as listener birthdays, we didn't have any come in this time. But if you, a friend, or a relative are having a birthday coming up, send us the information at feedback at onscreenandbeyond.com. We'd love to wish a happy birthday to you or your friends or your relatives with everybody else around the world listening to On Screen and Beyond. And that's it. Coming up next on On Screen and Beyond, Rod Pyle joins us and takes us into space right here on On Screen and Beyond. Today on On Screen and Beyond, our guest is a writer, director, and producer who has done work on the History Channel, Discovery, and the show Modern Marvels, and more. He has lectured to NASA 
Anne has written many books, including his most recent, Curiosity, The Mars Rover Mission. It's Rod Pyle. Rod, welcome to On Screen and Beyond. Thanks for having me. Rod, we're going to get into to all kinds of things today because uh, you've, uh, you've done quite a bit. And uh, it would, what struck me was uh, about the, uh, the, the outer space music that uh, they've been hearing, or they heard, rather, on Apollo, uh, which one was it? Ten, yes, Apollo 10. Yeah. Uh, so that, that's kind of interesting. Because you've, you've done a lot of other things here, so we've got a lot to talk about. And uh, I'd, uh, first off, like to get to know what, what your background is. What brought you to be interested in working on a lot of uh, things, documentaries about uh, the Apollo mission, for one thing? Well, I was a, a, a child of the Apollo era. I was born uh, at the very end of the baby boom, so I, I'm old enough to remember those missions. And you know, while other kids were you know, trading football cards and that kind of stuff, I was the, the one inside with the pale skin that was glued to the television watching the moonwalks for, mm-hmm. for ten hours at a time. <laughs> so, you know, I was fortunate to have been alive at that time. Because it's hard to remember now, we had missions, these grand missions of exploration heading off the moon every eight to ten weeks for about two and a half years. It's hard for me to believe it happened today when I look back sometimes. So that was a very inspiring thing. So I I went into science in college and spent about a year and a half at UCLA as an astronomy major and very rapidly realized that astronomy was essentially math and that math wasn't my best friend. So I thought, okay, plan B which I also love is I'm going to learn how to communicate this to people. So after spending some time at a school called Art Center, some more time up at Stanford, I thought, okay, done. I'm going to go out and do this communicating. And then I got way late to the TV commercials for a while. But that wasn't all bad because that teaches you the art of the spell, you know. And there's something to be said in any form of communication for understanding the cell. Uh, after that, I got involved in documentary television, as you said with History Channel and Discovery and so forth for a number of years, which was great. The only problem I had with it was you're really kind of telling the time-life version of the story, the very short, kind of shallow, how you do the whole Apollo program in 44 minutes kind of show. Mm-hmm. And that's really, in the early 2000s, when I got fascinated by the idea of writing books, I'd always wanted to do it, but was a little uh, shy about whether or not I thought I could pull it off. So my first book was uh, Destination Moon in 2004, and that sold well enough that they gave me another one and another one. So I'm sort of pigeonholed in the space author category, but since that's what I've loved, it's it's worked out great. So between that and the talks, continuing to work on the odd documentary here and there, it's about as much fun as you can have and still make Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> now, now, when you mentioned about uh, sitting up and watching the the uh, lunar landings and, and all that, I can remember uh, they and and you'll know the actual uh, answer to this as opposed to my memory, which is fading fast. So. <laughs> but <laughs> I know the feeling. Didn't they um, when they landed on the moon? Didn't they have to delay the walk? for a little bit, like a, a day or something, before they could go out? So they went from, instead of the, they, they landed and then they were going to walk, or they uh, and they delayed it from the 19th to the 20th? Wasn't there something? You're talking about the, uh, the first landing? Yes, the first landing. That was an interesting setup. They hadn't really, they had orbited the moon with Apollo 8, and then they had done a low flyby test of the lunar module uh, with Apollo 10, 
which we'll talk about later because of mysterious space music. And on Apollo 11, they finally made the landing by the hair of their chin because it was uh, it was kind of a it was a tough landing. Laughing as much as they would have liked, and they were a little off in terms of coming down. So they they were landing longer than they wanted, and Armstrong had to wrestle to get it down to his spot. All that said, they landed on schedule and more or less where they wanted to. The original uh, flight plan for them to make the landing and then basically take naps for a number of hours and get up and do their moonwalk, which was going to be about two hours, just one moonwalk for two hours because it was the first one. Uh, and I don't know how many people actually believe that before they left, but if you ask a couple of astronauts, okay, you're going to do this amazing thing for the first time in history, furthest from the Earth, furthest from the Earth that anybody's ever been, and then we want you to take a nap and we'll let you know it's time to take your spacewalk. Uh, Aldrin and uh, Armstrong said, you know, we're, we're ready to go. So it took a little bit of time to prepare because the cabin of the lunar module is pretty small and those suits were bulky. And then uh, one thing you may have heard of was they had a, they had a valve that they opened to depressurize the cabin of the lunar module. It was pumped up about five pounds of, of uh, air. And, of course, the moon has a, a hard vacuum. So they had let all the air out that would go out, but they still couldn't get the hatch open. It was stuck closed because there's just enough residual air pressure in there to push the hatch up against the, the front of the lunar module. So as Aldrin put it, he said, I reached down with my gloves because they have these very grippy fingertips, got them around the edge of the hatch, and he didn't say he opened it. He said he peeled it back. <laughs> now, if you've ever seen the lem, it's really thin. They were having terrible weight problems. And there's a reason the astronauts got to calling it the tinfoil spacecraft or the aluminum balloon. Um, at any rate, they managed to pull the hatch open and finally get out and were actually ahead of schedule at that point. Oh, they were. Okay. Because I, I just remember when – was it originally scheduled to, to do the walk – the first step on the 20th, because I, that's my birthday. So I, I remember being all excited because they were walking on my birthday on the, you know, the first time on the moon. So I just remember that. Well, Apollo 11 landed on July 20th. And I don't remember if the moonwalk actually started on the 20th or the 21st. And it depends of course, on where you were, right? If you were in Bay, that was one day. And if you were here, that was another, but uh, my memory, like yours, has faded a bit, so yeah. I have to check. But yeah. I think it was still the 20th. Yeah, I, I just remember that because, you know, they walked on the moon on my birthday. I remember that. Or they landed on the moon, I should say. <laughs> well, so, congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great anniversary to have. Right. <laughs> you know, we're coming up on the 50th anniversary of that, believe it or not. Really? Wow. years. 50 Jeez. years since Apollo 11 land. Yeah. Jeez. It's, it doesn't, doesn't seem... Aldrin's still with us. Yeah, it doesn't seem that like it was that long ago either. Jeez. <laughs> It doesn't unless you're somebody that wasn't there. I was uh, right. preparing some notes for a talk earlier today and remembering I had uh, done a, a, a sit-down chat with a group of kids from this organization called the Society for the Exploration and Development of Space, I think. Students said, students of the Exploration and Development of Space, in uh, oh, it was part of a conference. And I got to talking about my various books, and we started talking about Apollo, and I was I was saying the same thing I was saying to you about these these great adventures taking off every two months. And a couple of them got teary, and one actually started to cry. And I said, are you guys okay? And they said, it's just so amazing to think that. We grew up seeing the last half of the shuttle program, and that was inspiring. But the idea of going beyond mm -hmm. into, quote, deep space, unquote, out to the moon was just 
absolutely mesmerizing to them, and I think they were very distressed <laughs> that I had been there and they hadn't. So <laughs> I felt sort of bad for them. But uh, yeah, that was a piece of good fortune. Now, what do you what do you think about all? Uh, there's still people out there that say they never walked on the moon. Yeah, that's a big topic for late night AM radio. Yeah, I, I mean, I can't understand. I mean, to me, it's ridiculous, but. <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, but it's like any conspiracy. We we get back images from Mars every day now, incredible high-fidelity images from the Curiosity rover and from Opportunity, which is still operating up there, so we've got two. And every now and then something shows up, some weird rock that looks like a femur or a skull or a, <laughs> a, a, a fairy or who knows what. You know, one looked like an artillery piece, and immediately they start crackling around the net. Oh, my God, look, they finally found Atlantis and that kind of thing. Right. <laughs> I mean, we want to believe things are amazing. I think if you're, if you're uh, enthusiastic about science and about exploration and discovery, these missions are already pretty amazing. I mean, we've had a rover up on Mars that's operating, had a, an expected life of 90 days. It's in its 12th year. Right. I, I... That's pretty amazing right there. But if you're looking for more and you're kind of looking for that inside secret, you know, conspiracies are great. The Apollo conspiracy has been there, a theory has been there for a long, long time. And the basic, uh, you know, the Russians couldn't manage it. So how could we manage it with that old cranky 60s technology? So there are people that think it never happened. And my usual answer to them, because you're not going to win that argument. Right. right? Yeah. It's like <laughs> arguing about religion. It's a very subjective thing. So my usual response is, do me a favor, you know, go to the Cape in Florida, go to Johnson Space Center in Houston, see the machinery. Each one of those places has a leftover Saturn V rocket from the canceled, they canceled the last three Apollo flights, so that hardware is still on the ground. Look at it, look really closely at what it took to make those things. Then go to the archives, as I have, and go through the millions of documents. I will go through a small percentage, obviously. Look at the, the hundreds of thousands of feet of film the many, many hundreds of thousands of photographs. And then if you still feel like it never happened, we'll talk then. But you really need to hmm. immerse yourself in it to, yeah. I think, be able to make that that determination. And once you've done that, it's pretty hard to think that all that effort didn't result in something real. And then, of course, you talk to a couple of moonwalkers. I've interviewed a bunch of those guys. And it's like walking into a room where suddenly all the out. I mean, they're just such amazing type A personalities. They've mellowed with age, but they're just incredible people. And by the time you spent an hour or so with one of them, I don't know about you, but I was certainly convinced. There's no question. Mm. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Did you ever get a chance yeah. to meet uh, Armstrong? I did not. He was a tough one. Uh, I've spent a lot of time with Aldrin and with uh, Charlie Duke from Apollo 16 and a couple of others, uh, Al, uh, Al Bean from Apollo 12, who's a wonderful artist. Um, but Armstrong was someone who was extremely private pretty quickly after he got back and did NASA's public loop, as was part of the deal. He uh, moved back home, essentially, and took up a university teaching post and dropped out of the limelight because he felt it was something that he did because he was in the right place at the right time. And he was just another test pilot in his mind. And, uh, yeah. That's kind of an amazing thing. Yeah, I, I got the chance to, I, I don't want to say meet him because I wasn't f personally in front of him talking with him, but I was at a uh, graduation at, at USC. I think it was one of his last and very rare uh, spe speaking engagements when he spoke at the mm -hmm. uh, University of uh, Southern California's uh, graduation because my daughter was 
was uh, graduating, and uh, he was there, and it was. I mean, I was, I was thrilled because, <laughs> I mean, you know, <laughs> like Lindbergh, right? That right. Was yeah. the I mean, geez. So you know, it was it was very uh, uh, quite a thing to to listen to him, you know, and and uh, so I, I I guess I can say I met him in a sense, but not personally. <laughs> Okay, well, you got one up on me. There is a chance, though, for the average guy in the street now, you're probably not going to meet a moonwalker. They're, they're getting, getting up right. there in years. But um, there's a film that just came out called Last Man on the Moon. It's been around for three or four years, but it just finally got released and limited release all over the country. You can get it on, I think, Netflix or Amazon. And it's 90 minutes. And I saw it at a, at a conference, I think, in 2012, 2013. And it's wonderful. Made in the U.K., the guy spent a lot of money, didn't have distribution lined up, or if he did, it fell apart. I don't know which, but he obviously spent, you know, if you worked in this area, well over a million dollars making this thing. It wow. is a spectacular, heartfelt, very soulful look at Gene Sternan, who was the one of the two moonwalkers on Apollo 7, last guy to get back in Lunar Monster before they came home. And the wonderful thing is, uh, these guys have, have, over the years, become so mellow and so reflective and really, as you get older, you, I think you, you think more and more through your heart. Maybe it's because we just have so much more time on our hands. I don't know. <laughs> but to hear him talk in these very philosophical terms about something that is generally spoken of in fairly engineering-specific terms is is really a thrill, and it's it's well worth seeing. He spends a lot of time wandering his ranch, uh, talking about how tough it was in his family, apologizing publicly to his first wife for what he what he put the family through during those years. He said we were very selfish. We were doing something for the country, but we were doing it for ourselves too. And there was a cost on people. And that's true not just for the astronauts, but for a lot of people involved with that program in many different areas because it was just such an incredibly demanding time. Sure. Uh, finally, I think one of those most moving scenes is they take him back to the launch pad in Florida at the Kennedy Space Center, and he stands the Apollo 17 Saturn V rocket lifted off. And at that point, it was uh, not being used to refurbish, so it was pretty forlorn looking. It was after the shuttle had stopped flying. So there's rust streaks and a little bit of overgrowth and that kind of thing. And he walked around, said a few things, got very quiet, and he said something the effect of, I'll be here to leave. It was just too distressing for him because those guys felt that that program should have continued in one way or another. And mm -hmm. we really just set it aside and went in a whole different direction. So that's a pretty telling moment. Yeah. Jeez. It's, I'm going to have to look that one up because that's, that sounds interesting. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing that these guys, I mean, you know, they did what they did because, you know, I mean, basically we're going to put you in a little tin can on top of a bomb basically that's going to blast yeah. off and go Absolutely you know, right. i mean that's uh, you know that takes a lot of guts i mean jeez so well if you look at those capsules if you have a chance to go to the museum and look at them they're not very big no <laughs> not at all i can't if i i've sat in i think two of them if somebody sort of half closes the hatch i get this immediate sort of Oh my God! The elevator's stuck between the floors, sort of moment. It's like, no, no, <laughs> I'll get out now. That's fine. Shuttle yeah. is is fine because it's bigger. But, but those capsules were small, and um, you had to be a special kind of person to lock yourself in there and and go from one celestial body to another. So I, I just have nothing but the utmost respect for those guys. There's oh, something yeah. else. We'll be back with more of our guests right after this short break. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, you mentioned Curiosity, which, uh, of course, your new book, like I said, was Curiosity, an inside look at the Mars rover mission. And that is amazing to me that something that was made for such a short amount of time for the mission, uh, and now it's just like you say, it's 12 years. Well, that's opportunity. Curiosity landed in 2012. But they're both – so we got two rovers up there. That's the great part. A bunch of orbiters, too. But, yeah, they're both well beyond their expected lifetime. Yeah, Curiosity I mean, actually has a nuclear power supply, so it could go for a long, long time. So did they plan on, on – I mean, I know they planned on a certain length of time for the mission, but, uh, I mean, what are they – oh, well, we're going to work another week here or another month. Or <laughs> it, it's an interesting question because JPL, and by extension NASA, are in a way sort of cursed by their success. When they were flying to the moon – Everything in human spaceflight was aimed at that one goal, getting the moon, getting back uh, a number of times. Everything in unmanned spaceflight, robotic spaceflight, was aimed essentially at at Mars, Venus, and a little bit at at Mercury in those days. So you had this handful of missions that you were building and only supporting one or two at a time. Now you've got NASA operating on effectively a tenth of the budget they had in the mid-60s. But you've got dozens and dozens of missions. The Voyagers are still operating. They've left the solar system. They launched in 78. You've got uh, a handful of of both rovers and orbiters working at Mars. Other machines out in the solar system. You've got Juno heading Jupiter. You've got New Horizons just past Pluto. And then a whole bunch of satellites around Earth that NASA runs to look at climate change and sea level and temperature and all that. So they have to keep paying for all this while building new things. Oh, and let's not forget we have a space station going overhead every 90 minutes mm-hmm. that we bear the brunt of the expenses for. So the fact that they can do that and continue operating is really something. Specific to your to your question, though, um, they have what they call primary mission, which is the goal of usually a matter of months. I think for both Opportunity and Curiosity, it was 90 days. Anything beyond that is considered to be a gift. So they try and accomplish their primary goals pretty quickly. Um, but these machines are engineered so well. And as you probably know, Curiosity has had a couple of problems, mainly with its wheels. Mm-hmm. Uh, they got torn up by sharp rocks. They were a little thinner probably than they should have been, the metal that wrapped the wheels. But they still work. It, it looks worse than it is because they have a lot of uh, strength inside the actual wheel itself so if it gets torn up and beaten up it's it's not as bad as it looks but they do have to be very careful and that's why these things drive very slowly and, yeah. and very carefully but um every couple of years they have to look at the budget and congress gets involved and you know some university will be hired to make an independent report and decide what to keep funding and that's where it gets tricky because in a number of these budget overhauls uh people have said you know We've probably gotten everything we need from Opportunity after 10 years, 11 years. Let's turn it off. Well, how do you turn off a, a, 
a properly functioning Mars rover. That, right. That's a tough one. Yeah. So financially, it makes a certain amount of sense, but in terms of science return, they just got another batch of stuff down from Opportunity that was extremely, that was unexpected and extremely rewarding. So hmm. I think they just need more money. Yeah. It comes down to how, how far has Opportunity or and Curiosity gone from where they originally land? I mean, like you say, they move very slow. So are, is it a couple of miles yeah. or or? How you know how, how far did opportunity go in twelve years? You know, <laughs> I don't remember the most recent number, but about a year and a half ago, they had broken the record for the Soviet lunar rover that landed back in I think nineteen seventy two called Lunatod. Uh, so they kept talking about Marathon and named the place Marathon Valley where they were. So it's something in the order at this point, I think, of twenty seven miles, hmm. wow. which. You know, uh, a, a guy, uh, Mark Watney, in a spacesuit could probably have walked that in a week, as he did in the movie The Martian. But um, <laughs> for a rover, that's a big deal. And if you have a problem, there's nobody up there to help you out. So as you may remember with Spirit, the other rover that landed at the same time Opportunity did, it got stuck in a sand trap, and that's where yeah. it ended up getting shut down because it just couldn't move anymore. So you got to be careful. So yeah, they go slow, but they've, wow. they've gone quite a distance. That's amazing. Now let's get into the uh, the outer space music <laughs> that that's yeah. the Apollo eleven that other uh, Apollo ten rather w- was hearing. Uh, and after all this time, it's just you know it's been in the news a lot lately. So uh, give yeah. us an idea of the background on it, and then tell us what what you think about it. Sure. Here's the rundown, and and having had another life in reality TV. I understand it in a slightly different way, I guess. Um, there's a show called NASA's Unexplained Files on the Science Channel. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, they said uh, uh, something effective. This recently declassified material tells us that the Apollo 10 astronauts heard music on the backside of the moon and debated back and forth about whether to tell Mission Control about it. You know, is the, what is this mysterious music and so forth? And as reality TV will do, they built it up to kind of a a frantic, fevered pitch, and then left it with a big black question mark on the right. hand, like all those bad sci-fi movies in the fifties. It's Pink Floyd, so, <laughs> right? And Dark they played, Side of the Moon. They played a piece of the audio, which was you know very uh, a lot of static because they were on the moon after all. But and you hear the astronaut saying, "Wow, what's that strange sound?" You know, and you kind of hear this noise, mm-hmm. and it does sound weird. So you've got these two spacecraft. The command module, which is the capsule, the lunar module, which is the landing craft, on the backside of the moon. They've said they're both in full operation, and these guys are getting ready to make their, their low-level pass to, to simulate a landing on the moon. Now, each of these spacecraft has a whole bunch of radio signals going out. You probably know where I'm going with this. Command module and lunar module both have antennas to talk to each other. Mm-hmm. They have intercoms for the astronauts within to talk between themselves have antennas to send a separate signal down to Earth, which is called telemetry, which is monitoring all the instrumentation and the machinery on board. Command module alone had something like three million parts in it, so there's a lot to worry about. And then there's all kinds of, of RF signals and electromagnetic signals moving around inside the spacecraft along literally miles of wire because of all the things you have to control and run. Each one of those wires can become a little miniature antenna because it's it's radiating uh, radio waves, and uh, this was being this was happening in the '60s with technology that was pretty blunt force compared to now. I mean, higher voltage. We'd just gotten transistors 
worked up to the point that they could be put in integrated circuits. So we had just moved away from vacuum tubes literally less than a decade earlier. So when you look at it from that light, lots of heat being generated, lots of uh, emissions being generated. So there's signals going all over the you, you work in radio, you know that if you get a couple of frequencies fairly close together at the same time, you get what's called a beat frequency, which is they start modulating between each other. You, get, you can get these strange noises. If you've ever listened to shortwave, you hear it all the time. Mm-hmm. You're spinning around the dial and you hear, woo-woo, and wonk, 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 and all these strange sounds. Yeah. So on Earth, we just take that for granted. Out on the backside of the moon, where you are supposed to not be able to hear any signals from Earth because you're blocked from them, it's a little more surprising. So if you look at the dialogue between the astronauts at that time, and I saw this stuff in the archives in the 80s. It was there. Mm-hmm. What changed and what led to this claim of recently declassified, NASA made it very clear shortly after that show aired and the news stories started coming up. They said, no, 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 it wasn't classified. We just got around a web because we don't have very much money for this kind of thing. Right. <laughs> so it took us a while, you know, in the order of 40-plus years. Um, so it did turn up recently on the web, but it's always been there. And if you interview the astronauts about it, they it was kind of weird and it was interesting and we didn't think anything about it. And if we had, we would have made a big deal about it, but we just, we figured it was radio interference and that was that. So could it be some kind of signal from the aliens that are about to come down and have us all for lunch? (laughs) Possibly, (laughs) but it's unlikely because of, of what I've just explained. So these these two spacecraft were literally like radio frequency generators heading off in all directions with multiple antennas and backups and so forth. So that's that's the key to the story right there. Yeah, yeah. Well, like you say, being in radio, there there were times when I was on on a, on a radio station, and you know it's supposedly a low frequency and all this stuff, and all of a sudden we're getting calls from. Uh, people three states away, and uh, right. you know you, you have the skip sometimes, and it, it rarely happened, but you'd get it, and uh, you know it's like wow, we got a call three states away that you know can't hear us normally. <laughs> so that's I, I I was wondering if that was the type of thing that uh, would would do it, even though it's on the moon, you know. Right, but of course that's not that. That explanation isn't nearly as much fun, is it? So right. I, I understand why they went the direction. And TV is extremely competitive, constantly being asked, can you come up with something new and previously unknown and recently declassified? And as long as you put quotes around it, that's okay. But it's just not so. Right. <laughs> well, and like you say, there's uh, in order for a reality TV uh, show documentary whatever to to get what they're trying to get for the from the audience they got to put a spin on it anyway so <laughs> yeah you really do and i personally and again i've got more time to do it in books which is a great gift so i don't have to be quite as breathless about it but you do you know when you're telling a book or a show and when you're subtitling it when we're writing the description that's going to go up on on the uh on the tv set or online there is always this temptation to sort of nudge it a bit so that it sounds a little more fantastic than it really might be, which is why show pitches have lots of superlatives like amazing, astounding, never before seen, fantastic, and all that. <laughs> but most of the time, when you get right down to it, what you're writing about, if you're responsible, is pretty straight history. And for most of us in the trade, that's exciting enough. You know, mm-hmm. just the idea that they went out and did that, when they made these moon voyages in technology that was basically. 20 years removed from World War II, mm-hmm, right. right on the edge of what it could do, very dangerous, oh, is yeah. is breathtaking. 
Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, I, I wanted to, before we finish up here, I wanted to go into one more thing here uh, that you, uh, like you said, you've worked on the modern Marvels and you've done TV shows and things like that, documentaries. But um, I noticed on IB, IMDb that uh, you also have done visual effects before. Yeah. And I, I noticed briefly, go ahead. That I noticed that you, that you have a little Star Trek uh, Deep Space Nine experience in there. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. That's fun. Yeah, I was there at a again. Talk about timing. I was there at a wonderful time. It was the last. I was on uh, for three seasons. Always came on. It was always hired at, at, at the end of the hiring cycle when they needed one more guy. So I never got onto the actual credits for the show. But uh, we worked on visual effects in the shop down the street from the studio. This big tin shed down on an alley off of Melrose it got very hot in the summer. But it was the last few years where we were using physical models, miniatures, as they were called at the time. And I left right about the time they started moving over to CGI. I don't have anything against CGI. This wasn't as much fun as mounting up an eight-foot model of the Enterprise right. and applying <laughs> multiple passes on it. So that was a really thrilling time. The work's hard. pays really well. Um, I think my favorite memory of that was we got the 1701A model out, which was the one for the first Star Trek movie. So it was the original Enterprise, but with the 57 Cadillac engine nacelles added on the back. And that thing's, I guess, eight feet long. It cost back in the 70s almost $200,000 to build. And I went there, we were shooting a calendar shot or a book cover, I forget which, for some Paramount project. So I got there a little late, and I walked into the stage from the bright summer light outside. It took a second for my eyes to adjust. The whole stage was dark, except for this model lit up right in the middle of the room. And it was one of those transformative moments. It's just <laughs> astonishing because it's so beautiful. No matter how close you get, it still looks real. And you can really imagine the look inside so that was a really that was a, a great experience yeah yeah now and, and your books are are, are serious books and and, and uh, about serious subjects but uh, you know they're all dealing with space and of course being uh, you must be have a, a, a fascination with with star trek and things like that anyways right oh sure i mean you can't work on trials and tribulations the remake of the tribbles episode without being a <laughs> star trek fanatic and we got to pull the negative from the original show for that Deep Space Nine episode and retransfer it and see the coffee stains on Spock's shirt and all that. Wow. So every bit of it was it was it was kind of as close as I ever got to being on something like the Apollo program. You yeah, know? yeah. It was an awful lot of fun. So yeah, it it does tend to make you a bit of a fanatic. Wow. Well, Rod, I want to uh, finish up with two final questions, but before I do that, I want to let you uh, let us know where people can get your books if they want to get uh, all because you've done more than one, so there's plenty of them out there. I'll be finishing my 10th and 11th books this year, so they're all at Amazon and Barnes and Noble and the usual places. I've got links to a couple of them on my website, which is pilebooks.com. That's P-Y-L-E-books.com. And this year I'll have three more titles coming out, so it's been a busy year. Wow! Uh, any can you give us a, a little taste of what what the the subject well, sure, is? Sure. There's one book uh, called Mars: the, the Next Frontier, which is uh, basically a look at the history of the Mars Exploration Program, which I also wrote about in 2012 in a book called Destination Mars. But this is a return to the picture book, form. so we've got I think 340. Uh, 
pictures in there varying from quarter page to full page, just sort of really giving a visual documentation from the very beginnings of Mariner 4 all the way through to the Mars 2020 mission. And there's another one, the title's still being determined, but it's uh, a book on the science of sci-fi. So that's kind of a fun departure for me because it's, it's still science, but it's not just space flight. We talk about invisibility and um, traveling fast at the speed of light and immortality and cyborgs and all this kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. it's, it's still science writing, but it's much more general. And then finally, towards the end of the year, I'll be working on a book called Amazing Stories in the Space Age. And it's a combination of lesser-known missions that you may or may not have heard about, probably don't know the details of, and other missions uh, that were never flown but were were very thoroughly planned out. Like uh, an example is the German, the Germans in World War II had planned to put a skip bomber, they called it, on top of an enhanced V-2 rocket that was going to boost up into a very low-orbit re-enter briefly over New York long enough to drop atom bombs on Manhattan and then land somewhere in Japanese-held territory back in the 40s. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they never pulled that off, but they had done a lot of work on it, and it's pretty compelling to read about. A little chilling, too, actually. Yeah, geez. Huh. Well, I wish you luck with those, but uh, I want to finish up with the two final questions. Toughest questions. Sure. Everybody tells me that these are uh, the ones that... Uh, you know, are a little tougher than the others, but it takes us, it takes us away from everything you've written and worked on and everything. But when you sit back and relax, what are your favorite TV shows now and of the past? And what are your favorite (laughs) movies now and of the past? Oh my gosh. Um, (laughs) I am a big fan of the original war of the worlds from 1953, mostly because it's scared me sleepless for about three nights. I saw it (laughs) as a kid in the sixties. It looks pretty, pretty, we're cut and cranky today, but it was just astonishing at the time. And, mm-hmm. you know, these beings from another world came down and wiped out everybody and only died because they caught cold. So that was that was pretty thrilling. Um, I'm old enough to have seen Star Trek the first time where my wife and I used to sit around and, and quote each other while we watched the episodes and give line reads ahead of them and all that geeky stuff. So obviously I'm a major Star Trek fan. As far as new series goes, I really enjoyed Fringe. Uh, I'm looking forward to the new Star Trek. It's going to be, I think, about a year here. The CBS one, they, yes, on streaming. Yeah. On stream, yeah. And they also, as you may have seen, they took the old episodes and brought in Mike Okuda, who is the art director from second generation on, and had him supervise redoing the effects digitally for the original show with a retransfer of all that negative. And it looks... He's he's very much a loyalist and stayed true to the original intent of the series, so it really looks like it would have looked had they been able to do it back then that way, and that's an awful lot of fun. Wow. So that's become kind of a new favorite. If you get a chance, it's really worth watching. It's on Netflix and Amazon and so forth. Hmm. Yeah. Well, Rod, I thank you so much for taking the time, and uh, it's fascinating. I could I could talk about this with you for or listen to you really <laughs> talk about this because it, it was <laughs> such a, a big part of my life when I was a kid. And uh, I thank you so much for sharing with us. You bet. Let's do it again. A big thank you going out to Rod Pyle. 
from us all here at On Screen and Beyond. And uh, interesting, very interesting. I love those shows on the History Channel, the Discovery Channel, uh, and uh, like I said, on Mar- Modern Marvels and, and everything there. Those type of shows, Ancient Aliens, a lot of fun to, to listen to and watch and see what... Uh, you know, uh, what's going on. And uh, I enjoy that. Hope you enjoyed that interview. And you can get more information by going to Rod Pyle's website. Uh, and also, of course, picking up his books because he's got a lot of interesting books that uh, will tell you a lot of different things about all the different uh, space missions and all that and curiosity. And, you know, it's just it's just fascinating how those things can just keep running and running and running. You know, we, we, we can hardly get a car that lasts <laughs> that long without repairs. And uh, here they are running for 12 years up there. So uh, that's uh, pretty cool. But anyways, what do you say? Uh, if you have a suggestion for a guest, send it to me at feedback at onscreenandbeyond.com. And if you are on Facebook, be sure to like us. And next week, we have another guest coming your way, a great guest, too. So until next week, when we once again take you on screen and beyond, I'm Brian Zimrak. Take care.